0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp. Witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show.
2: Hello, this is Kate, and I'm really excited to be back. It's been ages. I haven't been around very much lately. So um, it's great to be back. I'm extra excited because we've got some really cool guests for you today. Hello, Kate. Who are we talking to today, Alina?
3: Right, okay. So really excited about this because we've dragged Gemma Mason back just because I can. And if you don't know who she is, get the hell and go listen to her Ottoman Empire podcast it was fabulous so I decided we'd get her back on because at the end of that podcast we started talking about Dracula but we don't just have one guest we have two guests our second guest is Victor Foyer he is from Transylvania he's a fiction author and he's written about the life of the real Jack Dracula in four volumes called Dracula Chronicles and he's yet to write more apparently so hopefully we're going to be hearing a lot more about that welcome guys hi Good evening. Very excited. (laughs) Uh, Kate said she's going to take a little bit of a setback in this, but I don't care. I'm going to force her to ask some questions. I'm totally taking a back seat. I've
2: just
3: cracked open a beer. Don't worry. Check this out. Kate's cracked open a beer. I'm not drinking because I still have more podcasts to record. Uh, Victor, it's like 9am for you, isn't it?
4: Yes. Yes, it is.
3: But it's five o'clock somewhere, so you can crack open a bottle of vodka.
1: (laughs) It's five (laughs) o'clock here.
4: Actually, I swore not to touch alcohol until I finish publishing my volume two of the current contemporary novel that I'm being, I'm editing presently. So uh, that will come around Christmas. So until then, it's only tea and black coffee.
3: Well, we can pretend that you're drinking vodka then. Yeah. Brian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. right. Listen, Vlad, we're going to start with you because obviously you're from Transylvania. You so called me from- Vlad.
4: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Sorry,
4: Victor,
2: start that again am Sometimes think I feel like I'm No, I've done it,
1: you know what, I've done it before It's just like he channels the spirit I, yes, of yes. You know yes. what okay. it is?
3: Because Sometimes I wake read... up
4: in the morning and I have to look in the mirror before I can tell who I am
3: <laughs> I read I read First accounts of Vlad and that's why it clicked in my brain Alright, I'm not even going to edit this out I think people will have a, a bit of fun with this one Anyway, no, right Alright, so I can
4: answer. I can answer there.
3: Victor, your first encounter with Vlad was when? Because you are from Transylvania. So is this yes. something you heard of a, as a as a child?
4: I learned about him the first time when I was about six or seven. It was on a school trip from my hometown of Cluj uh, in Transylvania to his hometown of Sigishara, which at the time was called Schussberg. Uh, a German town in Transylvania. And uh, the distance as the crow flies is about <clears throat> less than 100 miles. So w- we are neighbors. I learned about him then, and I learned of his quality as a national hero. Not Nothing to do with vampires. In fact, I didn't know about his vampire persona or fake persona until I was 23. And so we went to this uh, town of Sigishara, uh, visited his house, which in, in which he was born. The house is still standing, and it's a big tourist attraction today because they made it into a bar, and uh, uh, they sell vampire wine there. But uh, like I said, at that time, I knew nothing. Then throughout the school year, yes.
3: Victor, I've got to interrupt you. Did you just say they sell vampire wine?
4: Yes, yes, In yes. the
3: house where Vlad In was the house
4: born. where he was born. There is a restaurant and a bar, and they have wine with a, I don't know the name of it, but it's got a vampire story on the label. So
1: that's red wine.
3: But
4: yeah. that's, kind of, that's kind
3: of, I mean, it's it's ingenious, really. Have you, hold on, have you tried this red wine?
4: I have, I have. It's miserable. It's not uh, like a good French wine, but who cares? So not the worth label, our time. The label's good. Now, the the wines of Romania are pretty reasonable, not bad, but this is a, more or less a tourist wine. Incidentally, just as a, a side trip here, this town has become the venue of, they say, the greatest um, Halloween party in the world. So every year at Halloween, thousands of people gather there up for obvious reasons. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with history. So Returning to history, throughout my school years, I continued to learn about Vlad, also called the Impaler, for reasons that we shall explain soon. Um, And uh, he was presented as an honorable leader, a very fair. His title would have been Voivod, which is equivalent to king uh, of the province of Wallachia. Mm Ravisavalakia is about a third of present-day Romania, and it's located between the Carpathian Mountains and the Danube. It's the place or the region where Bucharest is. Most people would have heard of Bucharest. And uh, so he ruled there for a, a number of years. And he made his bones by opposing the uh, attempts by the Ottoman Empire to conquer his land and go on from there to the rest of Europe. But we'll come back to that because that's a big part of the subject. Uh, my next encounter with him, and there was an the encounter that is a seminal moment because that's when I did 1770 in Chicago. Uh, I got to Chicago via some refugee camps in Italy, having defected from behind the Iron Curtain, and most of the listeners probably don't remember the Iron Curtain, but uh, it was your prime minister who gave it the name. Uh, Winston Churchill called it that. So I escaped from the communist regime in 1969, spent uh, almost a year in refugee camps in Italy, and ended up in Chicago. And... At that time, I could not speak English practically at all. I had a a few words, but when I used those words, nobody understood them, so I I discount that knowledge as well. Uh, So an acquaintance of mine uh, took me to show me the downtown Chicago after about a couple of weeks in in the city, and there on a a movie theater marquee, I see the name Dracula. Dracula. And I was shocked. It was like a—I had like a, an electric shock go through me. I said, "How in the world would Americans know about our national hero?" Because as much as he's important to us, uh, Romania, let us let's face it—it's a insignificant country. So I couldn't anyway conceive how he became known to the Americans. So I said this to my friend, and he said. Oh, you are stupid! About him. Everybody knows Dracula worldwide. I mean, he's the best-known Transylvanian ever. So then I learned that he's known not as the hero that was he was to us, the the defender of Christianity against Islam, but rather a count. So he has he had been demoted to count from king, and as a vampire. So that. Uh, I don't know. I, maybe I was very naive at the time, but it, it offended me very deeply. I don't know my my sense of this uh, national hero uh, being uh, downsized to count and then being turned into a vampire that uh, sucks uh, beautiful women's blood uh, just did not sit well with me. And the thought came through my mind. I said, "You know, if this is what the world knows of him, of Vladimir." Maybe somebody should write a book about him in and, and and present him in a more realistic light. Now, because I am not a historian like Gemma, I could not dream of writing a history book. So I said, I'll, I'll make up some stories. I mean I will write a fiction, a fictional account, fictional account of his life in I made that decision then and there in 1970. But then I knew that uh, I wasn't in a position to to write anything for a variety of reasons. One is I was completely ignorant of of the subject matter, other than what I knew about him from school. There was I knew nothing else. I, and second reason was that uh, I wasn't. Uh, able to maintain myself by writing books. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll have to go to plan A and build a career, which I did. Uh, I went to university. I got a couple of degrees there, University of Illinois. And then ultimately over a period of 40 years, I rose to the position of CEO of an international corporation in IT. And But throughout these 40 years, I studied intensely everything that I thought would come into play when I finally write the book, which meant more Romanian history than the three hours that I had in, in school, everything that I didn't know about Islam, which was everything. <laughs> um, early Renaissance that comes into play. A lot of historical subjects. So it took a long time. Plus, during this uh, these years, this 40 years, I had the opportunity to travel throughout the world. And whenever I had a chance to visit a site where uh, Dracula would have been or was suspected to have been, uh, I would go and visit it. And I finally got, I think, just about every place covered. And collected books, materials. I did some research uh, in Bucharest at the Institute of History for a few months. And finally, in in 2010, I retired at the age of 63. And I said, well, uh, if I don't do it now, it will never happen because uh, I'm getting old. So I started writing. And over the next eight years, I published these four books, these four volumes and um like i said when i started i thought it was going to be one volume but the story got bigger and bigger and now i i gave up i said all right whatever it is and i think there will be nine volumes total so gemma what um, about you
2: <laughs> yeah so i mean i i just thought it was really interesting how you you mentioned that you hadn't connected the, the kind of the, the two personas um and I thought that was really interesting because I imagine there's a lot of people in the world who don't connect Vlad and Dracula, perhaps, or know about Dracula and perhaps don't know about Vlad or certainly don't know the true story. So I think that's really interesting. and I'd love to, to talk about that more later. But as we said, there is a fourth person in the room. So, Gemma, tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Well, I learned about Vlad from the other side. I grew up on the sort of Christopher Lee's Hammer Horror, you know, Dracula's the Vampire, and obviously, you know, the iconic (laughs) Gary Oldman, you know, like that was my childhood. Um, And I was that teenage girl who like loved all the vampire stories and things like that. Um, But I was also, uh, this is an indication of the type of person my grandfather was, the kind of documentaries we would watch sort of true crime and very sort of dark history. And there was... We did have a documentary on at one point that was something like you know the dark histories of like famous men or something, and Vlad was mentioned there, and I distinctly remember two of the the talking head historians um who I would later learn were Roman McNally um and colin imber uh talking about it, and that kind of went onto to the uh, the the back burner for a bit but i was I was interested I was like, oh okay, you know Jack is this, this real historical person, that's kinda cool. And then when I got back to university and I started doing Ottoman history, uh, I actually discovered that uh, the real historical Dracula had this very close connection to the Ottoman Empire. Um, And that kind of like renewed my interest in Dracula history instead of Dracula folklore or Dracula literature, let's say. And... Because it's always been a way I got interested in history has been through popular culture. I watch a movie or read a novel and think, oh, was that, you know, really the way it was? Or I want to know how accurate this is. So I started looking at fictional representations of uh, pop culture that featured the historical Vlad instead of the vampire Vlad. Uh, And one of those was, in fact, Victor's uh, first book at the time, um, Son of the Dragon. So I purchased it. I read it. And along with a couple of other um, similar novels, I wanted to use it as an example in um, a study I was going to do of history and popular culture. So I reached out to Victor via email, doing my due diligence. And I said, you know, I'm a PhD student, blah, blah, blah. Do I have your permission to, you know, use your work, you know, in this way for my studies? And being the lovely bloke he is, he said yes. And we just kind of maintained a correspondence and you know, just kept in touch because we had these really, you know, big interests in history in common. And here we are today. Dracula pen pals. Yeah.
3: <laughs> That's super cool, actually. I really like the Dracula pen pals. Oh. And I was thinking about the geography because, Victor, you've touched on it already a little bit. Can you expand on Vlad the Impaler's where was he where did he live because <clears throat> you like you mentioned previously you talked about the idea of Dracula it's it's not all it's a very complicated issue isn't
4: it yeah i i will clarify i think the geography of the what i call the theater of operations is very important and especially to western readers who are my readership, because when I started to write the books, I had to make a clear decision to say I address readers of English language and not Romanians. If I were to write for Romanians, it'd be a different story. They know the geography, they know the history, and uh, probably would have little interest in learning much more from me. But from my experience with people in America and other countries is that they knew absolutely nothing about the real Dracula. Now, going back to, again, the early 70s, as Gemma mentioned, uh, subsequently, there have been a few very good books written about the real Dracula, and the awareness of the population in general that that, that there has been such a person has increased. So today, you will hear something like, Oh, yeah, I heard there was a real Dracula. That's kind of the, say the majority of the people's reaction to this story. A few will know a little more those people who have read my books, for example, or or have watched a, a TV show. But in general, there isn't knowledge. So that my, as I I'm, was I'm trying to conceive this book, I said, what do I have to do to hold the interest of a person who knows nothing about the subject matter, nothing about the region. So, of course, the, the going back to the region, the questions I would get in casual conversation from people say, oh, where is the Black Sea? Now, today, everybody hears about the Black Sea because of the war in Ukraine. And the same thing about Crimea. But uh, before the Olympics at Sochi, Nobody in this country knew about Crimea, not other than very passing. Of course, people who know a bit of history know the, the Crimean War in 1853. and uh, But in general, they don't. So I have to, in my book, I even included some maps to help them orient them. Uh, orient them. But for the audio, for the listeners today, I will explain how the geography plays an important role in this story. And to start with, where is the place that Vlad ruled and where a lot of the action will take place in in the future? All right, so we talked about Wallachia. There There are three provinces that you will hear mentioned in any story about Dracula, the real Dracula, would be Wallachia, Transylvania, and Moldova. These three these three regions form today's Romania, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, For example, Transylvania did not belong did did not become part of Romania until the Treaty of Versailles in uh, 1919. Until then, for nearly 800 years, it was part of the Kingdom of Hungary. Uh, Moldova was on and off on its own. Wallachia, again, semi-independent, always under the shadow of the Ottoman Empire. But so these are the three main regions that come into play. Uh, Incidentally, Vlad was born in Transylvania, as we said, in the town of Shasberg, or today's Sigishara. But he got, but he wasn't, His family wasn't a native of Transylvania. His father was from Wallachia. He was a son of of the king of Wallachia, or voevoda Wallachia, Mircha the Elder. And we'll talk about separately, when we talk about the uh, Society of the Dragon, how Dracula's father ended up in Transylvania. We'll get to that point. Um, So... This, these are the three provinces that will be important. Then we're talking about the Kingdom of Hungary, which more or less is what Hungary is today, although at that time it was more extensive. Uh, Austria was a smaller piece of the puzzle. Uh, then the Balkans, the Balkan region, I don't want to say the Balkan states because the, the na- notion of states has changed so much over the centuries. that. But the Balkans, which today... Um, are the 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 location of Bulgaria, uh former Yugoslavia as it broken as it broke up into all those other countries, Croatia, Slovenia, Kosovo, uh, Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh North Macedonia, so on. Then um the European portion of Turkey with Constantinople as the major city, and not the capital, obviously capital of Turkey being Ankara, but the European part of Turkey falls into this zone. Then part of the same geography we have uh, that concerns the story of Dracula, we have uh, Anatolia, especially Western Anatolia, with the town of Bursa, which was the first capital of the Ottoman Empire. The second capital was Edirne, today is called Edirne, used to be Adrianapolis. Um, so in between these masses of land, as we know, is uh, the Bosphorus. The Bosphorus, which connects the Black Sea to the Sea of Marmara, passing right past uh, Constantinople. Again, the Bosphorus plays a major role in the history of Dracula and the the conquest of uh, Constantinople and Mechmed II and so on. Um, Then, uh, so with them, we mentioned Crimea. The Black Sea is important because at the time of the story, the time when Dracula lived and fought with Mechmed II, uh, the Black Sea was considered practically a Genoese lake or Genoese lake. Uh, Crimea was a Genoese uh, colony and they controlled basically the traffic through there. Bosphorus was still open to international traffic until Mehmed puts the stop to that prior to uh, conquering Constantinople. So uh, this is the, the theater of operation that we will see uh, Vlad moving through and battling and fights and so on. Um, and for readers who are interested in understanding the real the story of the real Dracula, it's somewhat necessary for them to place these uh, locations on, on a mental map, at least.
1: Yeah, I think if you're reading Dracula history, do so with a sort of a map beside you to refer to consistently. That's always a good move.
4: This is why yeah. I included, uh, you, you seldom, well, you see them in some of the historical novels, but in, in my novels, I included detailed maps of all the places that come into play so that the people. Yeah, exactly. Could cover, uh, it's not fair to have to somebody who doesn't even know what or where the Bosphorus is to spin him a, you know, a hundred thousand word story. You, you're going to lose it.
1: Yeah, so, I think because because you're trying to appeal to that wider readership who maybe aren't as familiar with this area, that is something I like about your writing, actually, that it's kind of got that educational, it's very educational as well as being entertaining. I've
4: I, I, I learned a long time ago that no matter how much research you do for your novel, do not show that research in the novel. So it's all hidden in dialogue and it's all coming to you subliminally. Uh Yeah. I don't have a single paragraph of lecturing on a a particular historical topic. And this is because, as we know today, people don't have much patience with with lectures. And I decided that the way to get readership to follow and be interested in the real Dracula was to make the book character-driven. So I I reason if if my readers uh, fall in love with with Vlad because of the way he behaves and his character, then they will follow his stories and learn about the battles and the major political movements. But if I start with a sort of a patriotic song about how great he was and what a soldier, then uh, nobody's going to read those books. So the books are like an adventure book.
1: Yeah, basically what Victor is saying is if you've – He's not he's not Victor Hugo so don't confuse him with that because if you've ever read Victor Hugo's Lame Mis you know ask Victor Hugo about the Paris sewers but no it's not it's not that kind of thing at all
4: <laughs> the book the book is voluminous but it shouldn't scare the readers because it it reads very fast and That's true. It is intense in dialogue and character development. So but uh, what was the next question? So, we talked about geography. Yeah, yeah. I think one subject, if German, if you agree, is that what we should bring to the fore is that, okay, right, whereas Dracula is known throughout the world, even uh, going beyond the vampire now, yeah, the real Dracula is known for his alleged cruelty and for his means of execution, right? So, yes. they say, oh, he was a badass. Dude, and he used to impale people. Well, yeah. uh, I was on his behalf. I would say guilty as charged. However, there were mitigating circumstances, and we could talk th- about that a little bit. But whereas yeah, we this- can... yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
1: well, no, I'm just saying that's why he appears on a lot of the sort of the most evil men in history listicles. Right. But you know, well, there's it's always more complicated than that.
4: Well, to to give you a, a for instance, of that perception and in his influence, I've read that Ivan the Terrible, who, whose name tells you something about him, yeah, uh, uh, practically had a a. a th- there was a book circulating already in Dracula and Vlad's time, Dracula's time, about his deeds and his terrible mm-hmm. uh, uh, cruelty and so forth. That book was translated into several languages already in his lifetime. And by the time when Ivan the parable came um, in the in the mid-1500s, uh, it is said that he had that book on his night table because he had to... Now, this is apocryphal, but it's not unlikely because he had to deal with the same kind of Uh, circumstances surrounding his court, a lot of prisoners, boyars, which is their nobility, and how to deal with them. You couldn't just kill them off because they would form alliances against you and so forth. So he learned from Vlad how to prevail against them. And however, what Vlad should be known for more, and which is that is something that I'm trying to bring to my readers is his contribution to saving Europe from being overtaken by Islam. Now, this sounds like a tall order, but let's not forget that uh, Northern Africa fell to Islam in a period of less than 100 years. And Mm -hmm. then so did the Iberic Peninsula, which today is uh, Spain and Portugal and was held for about 700 years. And almost uh, France almost uh, endured the same fate, having been actually saved by Charles Martel in 732 at the Battle of Tours. Well, Vlad in his time faced the same existential threat when Mehmed, having conquered Constantinople, He had the dream of becoming the emperor of Europe. He wasn't satisfied to being the sultan of the Ottoman Empire, which he already declared that is heir to the Eastern Roman Empire. So he considered himself an heir to the Roman emperors. But mm-hmm. he, obviously his uh, portfolio was missing a major component, and that was the rest of Europe. And he says, well, no problem with that. I'm going to go get it. And to get it, I have to go conquer Rome where the Pope was, the Vatican, and so forth. So at some point, he made a decision to, for, for reasons that are too uh, complicated to discuss right now, but he made the decision to go overland. Essentially, he didn't have a navy at that time. Uh, go overland, and he said, oh, well, if I go across Wallachia, that should be a, a pushover because uh, I know Vlad. They, When we go back to Vlad's uh, younger years, we learned that they were friends. So they then they became frenemies. Uh, but at, at one time, they were good friends. And then he knew Vlad. And he said, oh, well, Vlad has practically no military power, no army. I'm going to go across his land and then on to uh, Hungary and then Croatia and on to Italy. And then boom, bada-bing, bada-boom, I will be the emperor of all Europe. Well, this would have meant that uh, Europe would have become a Muslim country. Which I will not pass judgment on that because I don't want to take a, a, a religious stance here, but it's just a fact of history. And the person who stopped him on his in his tracks was Vlad. And this is a documented, undeniable fact. So not being known for having saved Europe at this moment is somewhat of a miss, and my book will set the record straight there. uh, If somebody has doubts about how great the danger was at that time, when Gemma tells you about the fall of Constantinople, you realize who Mehmed II was and what incredible chances he would have had to do what he wanted to do, become the the emperor of, of Europe.
2: So, Gemma, tell us about Mehmed, because we've mentioned him a few times. Yes. So how did he fit into it all?
1: So Mehmet is Vlad's basically his equal and opposite number in the Ottoman world. He's very famous in Ottoman history. He is, in fact, revered to this day in uh, Turkey. He's actually Mehmet II, uh, known by the Turkish epithet um, El Fatih, uh, the conqueror. So this conquest of Constantinople really would be a very defining point in his reign, sort of a big part of his identity and a huge turning point for Ottoman history. So he was the son of uh, Sultan Murad, and he reigned actually twice, so kind of like Vlad, he had this little sort of on-again, off-again relationship with his throne. So the first time was when his father sort of abdicated the throne when Mehmed was incredibly young, and dad wanted to go and meditate up on mountaintops with Sufis. So Mehmed comes to the throne as a very young prince and he's Twelve was years
4: old. Twelve years old at that time.
1: Very young, yes, extremely young. And he's very you know, gung-ho. He's very much about we're gonna get this done and I'm gonna make my name and I'm gonna do this. And part of that and part of the the energy and let's say the risks he was willing to take to achieve his ends, um, the advisors around him felt uncomfortable I think many of them felt he was too young to be sultan they felt he wasn't you know he hadn't really learned how to do the job yet they pleaded with Murad to come back so he did and obviously that was a huge I think a huge blow to the ego of Mehmed. Um and so when he finally did come to the throne um, in in his later years I think he he around 19 or something he's doing most of his key work he's he's very much like i'm just i'm picking this up where i left off you're not going to stop me i've got things to do get out of my way so he's he's kind of big in in Ottoman history in turkey in the way that i think vlad is in romania and the fact that these two great rulers sort of coexisted at the same time and had this not just like political and military relationship but actually a very close relationship and a shared childhood um you know, gives that connection sort of more meaning and it's a lot more nuanced and complicated and a lot more fascinating to get into because, you know, we know Vlad as the impaler and everyone likes to think he's this brutish, cruel, we know Mehmet as the conqueror, so everyone thinks he's all military, he's soldier, he's he's this, that and the other. Vlad was a scholar. Mehmet was, you know, a brilliant, brilliant young man. He. And a he poet yeah a poet he's a gardener he you know he has all these artistic skills as well so I think when you really get your teeth into sort of Mehmet and Vlad's history you discover that far from being these kind of like two-dimensional images that we like to make people in history because they're easy to define as real human beings they're a lot more nuanced and I think again because of that shared childhood it was very much about um I mean I can't help but think, I mean, Victor uses the word uh, is that they they found themselves conflicted a lot about going to war with each other because, you know, this is their duty to their country, their religion or whatever, but that's, you know, that's my boyhood friend. We rode horse races together, we played juried together, we practiced sparring with swords. So I do think that both of them sort of dealt a lot with, I like this guy personally, but it's just the overall political environment we live in has made him my rival and that just makes him just a completely fascinating relationship to examine that I think could definitely bear closer scrutiny.
4: To to add to the makeup and portrait of Mechmet II, uh it's important to note that Constantinople had been subject of repeated attempts to be conquered by the muslims yep. uh, if i remember correctly but he is number seven in, uh, in trying his father tried kind of a half-hearted attempt um mm-hmm. every other uh, attempts to conquer constantinople in the 800s and 1000 and so forth nobody succeeded for the reason that the walls of Constantinople were so substantial that, were, with the technology of the time, they could not be uh, penetrated. And then the yes. city itself is defended on three sides, a has a shape of a uh, kind of a triangle jutting out into the Sea of Marmara. On one side, they've got the Bosphorus at the tip and then the Golden Horn. Which is a kind it's- of left, inlet on the other side. So it's on mm-hmm. three sides is water, and the land side has gi- had gigantic walls that nobody could conquer. Yeah. So for most of the previous attempts, uh, they the defenders didn't have to do much to to survive, and they had supplies of food in there, plus uh they had underground water cisterns. They yeah. could supply them with fresh water for for
1: years. And well, the systems the systems also provided them with food. They kept fish in there, so you know they yeah. were very well geographically situated to withstand a siege. They could.
4: They were Besides very well supplied. The, they, they, they could be resupplied, and this will be important on the, on the conquest of Constantinople. They were by method they could be resupplied by sea. So there are yeah. on the side there are gates where the Genoese and the Venetians who were more or less controlling the Aegean Sea, uh, they would come and supply them with food, so there was no real hope for the conquerors. So, when, and of
1: course, and of course, there's that famous Theodosian Wall that you mentioned, which yeah, parts of it stand today. You can go visit, and if you're in Istanbul, is I do saw recommend. them last
4: month. I saw them last month again, and it just blew my mind that the, the size of them, even now after they're ruined. Yeah, so. The reason I emphasize these, these aspects is to say that when Mehmet conquered Constantinople, it wasn't just like another ruler taking another town. This was a big a, deal, a game changer. And it, because of other circumstances that happened at the same time, uh, the, for, the 1453, the fall of Constantinople is considered a marker for the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the modern age. And that is also related to the weaponry that started to be used. And we'll get into that, to the big cannons and so forth. But uh, that has an incredible stature. So when he clashes with Vlad and Vlad, and this is a spoiler alert, Vlad (laughs) uh, stops him on his tracks, ruins his dream of, of reaching Rome. It is not a minor event. It is so monumental that for he for that to be forgotten in favor of uh, oh well he used to impale people. It's kind of a sad state of affairs. But I am fixing that. Don't you worry.
3: <laughs> so you've got here Vlad the Third, Victor. I need yes. to know where does Vlad the Third fit into all of this? Because all right.
4: Let's talk about Vlad II because he is important to the way Vlad got his name Dracula. All right, so Vlad II, his father, is the son of Mircha the Elder, the form, the the ruler of Wallachia, who died in 1418. At that time, um, Vlad the second, Vlad Junior. Oh, Maybe not Vlad Senior uh, was about uh, Gemma. Help me out here. I think about twenty-three years old. All right? Yeah, that and, sounds about right. And and he was. Uh, I mean, there were wars of succession there. There was a big mess at this at this time. The principle of primogeniture was not established in that part of the world, so the oldest son of the of the king would not automatically become the next king. Therefore, everybody could throw their hats into the ring. It's like the presidential elections in the United States right now. We got like about 12 candidates. Everybody feels like they should be the next uh, president. So uh, there were some uh, skirmishes and, and civil war practically and then Vlad uh, had to leave the country to survive and went to the court of King Sigismund of Luxembourg. And to make a clear distinction, Emperor Sigismund, who's better known to, is the same guy. Um, Sigismund became king of Hungary in uh, thirteen eighty six, I think and became emperor only of the Rom- Holy Roman Empire in 1433. So in that interval there um Vlad gets to go to his court and uh, about 14 um, 1428 I think something like that. So in the meantime to roll back the tape uh, with Sigismund he was Second marriage to a, name, a lady named Barbara of Sili, which is a very uh, large uh, Croatian family of uh, uh, great power and, and prestige at that time. He mar- married Barbara in 1408, and in the same year he established the Order of the Dragon. And there are there is some apocryphal. Information that Barbara may have been the instigator uh, of this event. So she put the idea, and of course, at that time, the ladies were not allowed openly to participate in such uh, affairs, but she put the idea in the Sigismund's mind and he formed this Order of the Dragon. We need to go back a few more years just to understand why that was necessary. And it is because when he came to to become uh, king of Hungary in uh, 1386, I remember now, uh, the biggest threat that he had to face at that time was the expansion of the Ottoman Empire south of the Danube. And that threat became greater and greater until it reached a, uh, a maximum point in 1396, when the sultan of the time, Bayezid I, Uh, gathered an immense army and he was planning to cross the Danube and attack uh, the Kingdom of Hungary and again do what his great-grandson was going to do later or try to do later. And this threat was faced by Sigismund with a collection of European knights that formed a crusade, famous and it's considered the last crusade, the Crusade of Nicopolis. In 1396, the army, the Christian army, gathered under the standards of the Emperor Sigismund, crossed the Danube at Nicopolis, present-day Romania in Bulgaria, and faced the Turks and got completely demolished. They got their hats handed to them on on a spit. And because of this, because of this tremendous loss where thousands of the best knights in Europe were killed and executed, decapitated, and taken as slaves. Um, The fear of the of Islam and of the Ottomans in particular grew very big, and in the next few years led to this idea of let's let's form a society that is dedicated to nothing else but combating uh, the Ottomans. This society called the. Let's see. In Latin, it's called probably. Uh, Gemma can tell us.
1: I don't speak Latin. I speak Turkish and Ottoman. That's kind of. <laughs> I have it It'll here. be something like like society. Like, it is or uh, called
4: Societas Draconis. Yes. Okay. That, that was the Latin name because Latin was the language of the court. However, because uh, German was spoken all around there and. Probably was the native tongue of uh, Sigismund. The order is also known as Drachenorden, Drachenorden in German. Now, uh, so this is formed in 1408, and it's open only to the highest levels of nobility and, and royalty and so forth. Uh, Vlad the sec- who will become the second dracula's father was inducted there in um in the 1430s early 14 uh 1431 i think no 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 in the in the 20s 1420s and soon thereafter in about 1431 M- uh, king sigismund Sent him off to Transylvania to be military governor of Shasberg. Now, this move was done as a preparation to assist Vlad to take over the throne of Wallachia. So, this was a, a chess move by King Sigismund. And the reason for him being interested in that is that Wallachia was a buffer state between Hungary. In the Ottomans, and therefore it was to his interest to have a ruler there who would be loyal to him and not god forbid side up with the Turks or the or the Ottomans. so this now brings us to the Dracula name. so when uh, Vlad goes to Sigishara or Shasberg to be governor of the of the town of the fortress, he is known to the locals by his German nickname of Drake, which came from Drake Orden, the Order of the Dragons. And it was a natural way to give him this nickname because he had an insignia with a dragon, just the insignia of the order. You are all familiar with that. And if not, look at the cover of my books and you'll see that insignia, which, by the way, one of the original patches surviving maybe the or only original patch surviving is at the history museum in munich and i have to pay a license fee to be allowed to display that on the cover of my books.
1: that's the um, the um, ouroboros dragon isn't ouroboros,
4: it ouroboros exactly with and in in the in the patch that is at the museum it's missing the 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 feet because yeah. they, it was the the thread wore out or something. So when I purchased that license, I also had to pay an extra fee to be allowed to reconstitute those legs, those the feet. So the dragon on, my, on the cover of my book is the only insignia that has the feet restored. I did the cosmetic surgery on that.
1: Also, so, spoiler alert, that is going to be my next tattoo. So... Just
4: be warned. <laughs> well, then you need to get the picture from me to get the leg, to get the feet. Otherwise, you're going to get it without. Exactly. And I pay, you have to pay me a license equivalent to what I have to pay to Munich.
1: I was
2: just <laughs> wondering that, if, if you're going to have to pay to have this, how much is it going to cost you to have that on your body for the
1: rest of your life? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure, but I mean, I've already I've already got like a representation of like Cleo, the muse of history, on my arm. Exactly. So. Gemma,
4: our license agreement will specify that every time you take off your clothes, you owe me a few pennies. Oh. I
2: think oh. we need to be careful the direction this is
1: going here. <laughs>
4: okay. This is Not a family show, right? So this should, is a family
1: uh, show. It depends on yeah, how I'm it, told you. Clean. Well, if, you, you're by, um... if you're by
4: yourself at home, you don't have to pay. But if if Robert sees you,
1: she's uh, Let's
4: team.
2: keep it PG-13, guys. All right, oh. all right, so... <laughs> Paul Gemma's blushing. So anyway, back to Vlad and Mehmed, and which. so we've got some really powerful characters kicking around, and this Order of the Dragon, which is uh, seems like a, a fairly powerful organisation. How does all of this kind of work in a military, political context? How does it affect Vlad and Mehmed's relationship? What What's kind of the outcome of all this?
4: Well, I, I will go to that next and maybe Gemma will have more about that. But just to finish off the name, because we, we, we went into joking instead of naming. Um, when the word drake was heard by the local residents in Transylvania, who were mostly Romanian peasants, to them, the word sounded like dracul. Well, dracul, as as much as you see that in various books, does not mean dragon in Romanian. The word dragon in Romanian is balaur, totally different word. The word drake sounds like dracul, and dracul means Satan, the devil. Now, this is relevant because to the Romanian peasants and to all Romanians throughout the land, that word was something awesome, something fearsome. And therefore, the Vlad being nicknamed now Vlad Dracul, this is the father, already acquired a certain uh, patina of, of of fierceness. However, he did not do much fearful stuff. But when his son, who was named Dracula as a sort of a derivative of Dracul, the way in English you would say Fitzgerald or something like that, uh, he became Became known as Dracul, Dracula, Dracula, Dracula uh, as a derivative of Dracul. Well, between the fact that that connotes the devil, and because of his brutal and cruel attitude with his enemies, you could see how these two things conflated to make make him look more. Uh, yeah, this great, is uh, this is
1: where we get the sort of the stereotype that's endured down the ages. Yeah, right. Yeah, but I also think it's important. Um, when you mentioned that uh, the father wasn't doing much, it kind of ties into Kate's question about the uh, the politics of the time. Because when I mentioned that Vlad and Mehmet had shared a childhood, what happened was Vlad and his youngest uh, his younger brother Radu, as children, were actually political hostages or prisoners at the court of Murad. And Vlad being sort of of an age of the young prince Mehmet, that's how they came into each other's lives. And they would sort of, I mean, they received a wonderful education. They studied alongside Mehmet and, you know, Vlad knew Ottoman Turkish. He knew the Quran. He was studying military tactics and swordsmanship and all that kind of things. But it was Vlad and his brother, they were resident at the Ottoman court as kind of an assurance against, it was like, against their father's good behavior, that he wasn't going to do anything stupid to provoke Murad. So that's kind of the the, the political, you know, games that are being played, let's say.
4: The father, Vlad Dracul, not to be mistaken for Dracula, Mm -hmm. Vlad Dracul, being the ruler of this buffer state between the Ottomans and Hungary, uh, had a choice. Or in theory, had a choice to side up with one or the other. Small states like that could never be totally independent or autonomous. Mm-hmm. They had to be under somebody's protection. Well, when uh, Murad made an incursion across uh, Wallachia and Transylvania and the same year, uh, a year after Vlad Dracul ascended the throne, and there was nothing that Vlad could do to oppose this incursion. And Murat went deep into Transylvania and took uh, tens of thousands of slaves and mm-hmm. went back to, to Turkey. Well, in that process there, um, Vlad had to think hard about what do I do next time? Who do I side with? And he would have liked to side with Hungary and get uh, protection from them, or at least assistance but he couldn't quite trust them because there were a lot of political dissensions there. Well, he didn't want to side up with the Ottomans for a variety of reasons, including religious. So he was kind of in the limbo there, but then Murad came to him, well, sent envoys to him later and says, I'll solve your problem. Uh, I'll leave you alone. I won't touch you. I'll I'll respect your uh, independence. But you give me your two sons as hostages.
1: And, and I think were they also were they also pay, uh, paying a financial tribute as well at the time uh, to the Ottomans? Or I don't or?
4: think he did. From time to time, there was on and off. There was part of the deal. Okay, if you do this, then you don't have to pay. For example, later on, when when Vlada ascends the throne, he <laughs> does on condition that he has to pay tribute to Mehmed. And for, he says no. <laughs> for, well, no, he says yes. Just wait. Just, the check is in the mail, and dragged yeah. him along for six years. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know if uh, Vlad uh, Dracul, the father, I'm not sure if he paid. I don't think he did, but he was left alone for a while.
1: But you but find him once they've taken his children, and because of the geography of his realm, that's a real Sophie's choice he's got there. Well,
4: yeah, he, he was he was stuck. Well, yeah. what happened in 14? Uh, 14... 48, 47, 1447, there was a sort of a coup, coup d'etat, if you want, in Wallachia. And Mm -hmm. the boyers who would have liked to, there were factions there. Some of the boyers wanted to side up with Hungary, some with Turkey, and they would ignore, uh, they could afford to ignore the risks of making a move because they weren't in charge. You know, they mm-hmm. could advise, oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Well, that led to various frictions and ultimately to a, a mini civil war there. And he was assassinated, Vlad Dracul was assassinated by a group of his boyars. Well, that's not the worst of it.
1: Along with his eldest son, yeah. was he, Mircea killed his at the, the same eldest time. Yeah.
4: Mircha, who theoretically would have been the next king. Right. Prince like Prince
1: Mircea is my favorite in the family. Yeah. So that's why I have to have him mentioned because yeah. he's my favorite.
4: Prince, Prince Mircea was going to most likely be the next king of Wallachia, especially that he was a few years older than Vlad. Vlad was away. And during this uh, upheaval with that ended up with uh, Vlad Dracul being assassinated, the same boyers captured Mircha, and instead of killing him, they buried him alive. Mm. Now, this is important because it's part of uh, Vlad's heritage there. And when he goes back, finally, he has to deal with his factions of boyers. So if you think that he was cruel to do the various things to them, including impaling, Well, if you think what they've done to his brother and his father, uh, I think you will have some understanding. Uh, So, um, now that we've established the relationship here, I want to uh, answer a question that Alina had, like, how does the order of the dragon tie into Mehmet and the others? And the answer is, it doesn't. And why? Because by the time uh, Emperor Sigismund died in fourteen thirty three and with him and many of the other inductees also died and you know the the farther they were they were from the Danube, the less gung ho they were on going and risking uh, their lives fighting the Turks, as long as there was somebody out there to take the brunt of the attack. So therefore the the relevance of the Order of the Dragon uh, waned, and all that we left with it is the name Dracula. That is the, the residual benefit of the Order of the Dragon. Now, there are books that will say that Dracula was a member of the Orden of the Dragons. No, he wasn't. Uh, the original members were, uh, of course, Sigismund, the second most important is listed as Vlad Draco. Then it was Alfonso V of Aragon, who was the king of Aragon, Naples and Sicily. Albert II of Germany, who was king of Hungary after uh, Sigismund died. And Filippo Maria Visconti, duke of Milan, not a relative of Lucino Visconti, the movie maker. So, um, Nothing to do with the Order of the Dragon thereafter except the name. Now what happened to the military forces and so forth, I think I'll let Gemma, the Gemma, the expert in Ottoman history, tell us.
1: Uh yeah. Okay. Well um yeah, so short and sweet, the military we disintegrated. We are hitting our hour of time. Actually there's just there's just too much on this topic. Yeah. Um the military again they disintegrated. Um European side, the Ottomans they go on this very successful conquest of Constantinople with actually a lot of firepower that um is something that people don't traditionally think they had. But actually, as far back as the Crusades, we're seeing firepower on the part of the Europeans and the Ottomans. And it's just that's a, a very great misnomer that sort of technology wasn't a factor in warfare. It absolutely was. And warfare between Christianity and Islam is something that existed again since way back into the Crusades. So this huge fall of Constantinople Again, and this the, huge the turning cannon. point. Yeah, okay. the big cannon was, was 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 a key factor in the siege of Constantinople, something I think it's important to remember that even if these cultures didn't invent this technology, they were going to get it from somewhere else. Okay, so yeah, there is so much more to say about c- contemporary military technology of the time, the importance of the siege of Constantinople. We're going to have to come back and to finish off this story because it's just There's just too much to talk about, I think.
3: Exactly. So listen, what we're going to do, we're going to let our listeners go have a breather, take in everything that you guys have said, and we're going to come back, we're going to record a second part, and then we're going to finish this off because we have, like you said, so much more to talk about. I mean, think we've only gotten halfway through our questions and we still have a load more to go through. (laughs) So can we just remind the name of Victor's books? Victor, Remind our listeners the name of your books.
4: Dracula Chronicles, volume one is Son of the Dragon, which pertains to his name, derivative from the Order of the Dragon. The second volume is called The Empire of the Crescent Moon, which is Crescent Moon being the symbol of the Ottoman Empire. The third one is called House of War, which is the designation that the Ottomans gave to the countries that were hostile to them. And the fourth one is called Death of Kings that has to do with events that happened during this time. A couple of kings uh, die and there is a comet that comes and foretells the death of kings and so forth. So these are the four volumes. Extent. Volume five, named Zara, after a love affair that Vlad has with a Persian woman. Uh, I'm going to start writing that in January and hopefully finish in 2024.
3: Perfect. So we'll get that into our bookshop on bookshop.org so you guys can purchase it. And we're going to come back with a part two. So guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for joining me and Kate, actually. Yes, thank you. It's
2: been fascinating.
3: Exactly. We will get another part out to you as soon as possible. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. you. Thank you.
3: Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So
1: make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.